Father, would you prepare our hearts as we worship you through the opening of your words this morning. We thank you for giving us voices to worship you. For indeed, you alone are worthy. May you be exalted through this message this morning. Speak through me as your willing vessel to bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Get your Bibles out this morning as we'll talk about a passage of Scripture that, um, as we continue our series on kingdom devotion, um, you know, I think I'm going to put this slide, here's why, a little backwards there. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Sometimes there are those worship times where it's like, you know, you can all just go home. You don't need to hear my voice. And it's good to have those times of worship. I've been in churches larger than this, far larger than this, that don't sound as loud as this church does. And it should be that way. And of course, you know that if you ever not worshiping, what do I do? I'll interrupt the worship and get on your case, and we'll start it over again. All right? Because we need to worship him. We're looking at going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're entering the last chapter of this uh, three-chapter sermon that Jesus gives. And we come to a very difficult passage, at least it was hard to write this sermon, but um, and it's also hard to understand, and I hope to explain it to you so you understand it and can live it out in a uh, way that God intended. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Is everybody there? Okay. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now we're going to go back to this because uh, I messed up the slides here. How many have, have taken the Myers Briggs type indicator? You ever heard of that before? It's a personality test. If you have raised your hand, it'll let me know that I need to do. I need to do a lot of explaining in this because a lot of you haven't. Okay, it's in personality typology. Um, it's a test that reveals differing psychological preferences in how people perceive the world and make decisions. I think, Erica, we were first introduced to this when we were engaged or we were first married, and we realized that we weren't a good match, and that was very discouraging. We made it, we, we made it work. <laughs> now, the test attempts to assign four categories. You're either an introversion or extroversion. You're an introvert or you're extrovert. You get energy from being alone or you get energy from being around people. Um, you're sensing or intuition thinking or feeling, judging or perceiving. And one letter from each category is taken to produce a four-letter test result, such as you're either an INFJ or an ENFP. But it identifies 16 personality types. Um, and this chart illustrates a different personality. So for example, when I took this test, I was right here or right here. I'm a borderline introvert-extrovert. 
I'm the only one here during the week. I'm alone now, and I'm fine with that. I'm an introvert. I you know, get energized from being um, alone. But I'm a borderline extrovert, too. I'm a situational extrovert. With you guys, I can have energy and engage and talk and gain, and gain some energy from that. But they know that when Sunday afternoon comes, guess what? I am dead tired. I go back to an eye, and I need to get alone to get re-energized. So I'm a borderline introvert, extrovert, and I'm an STJ and everything else. So if you were to read some of these, for example, it says, of myself, um, if I'm an ISTJ, it says I'm the inspector. I'm a responsible organizer driven to create and enforce order within systems and inst institutions, neat and orderly. Well, that's not necessarily me, okay? Inside and out, and tend to have a procedure for everything they do. I think I'm really more of the ESTJ, which they describe as a supervisor. Hardworking, traditionalist, eager to take charge in organizing projects and people, i.e. the work days. I make you work. I make sure everyone's working. For the purpose of what? We get as much done so we can go home early, right? Because you all tend to just kind of sit around here and do a little job and go and talk and don't do anything. And like, no, no, that's not going to work. Let's get this thing going. And we get the work done, all right? Orderly, rule-abiding, and conscientious. ESTJs like to get things done. Man, that is me. And tend to go about projects in a systematic, methodical way. Now, for those of you that have taken a test, can you raise your hand again? And can you tell me, Don, do you know what you are? Do you remember? So many years ago. So let's just pick one for Don, shall we? So we can make, <laughs> so we just do that? Or I needed to ask Carol, who would really know. Then who else took the test that remembers what they are? Don't remember? The INTP. I can't read that. Intellectual, logical, precise, yep, precise, reserved, flexible, imaginative, original thinkers, although that's not you, who enjoy speculation and creative problem solving. Yes, but that is a lot of you, yeah. Anybody else take the test that remembers? David Doyle. Okay, let's see if we can guess David Doyle. What, what would David Doyle be? Anybody? Awesome. There we go. What are you, David? ISTP. Okay, right. Action-oriented, logical, analytical, spontaneous, reserved, independent, enjoy adventure, skilled understanding how mechanical things work. Does that sound about right for you? For you, David? Very good. Good, good, good. So, now, here's the thing about this, though. At the end of my two tests, or my tests, and either ISTJ or ESTJ, I am ultimately what, though? What's the J stand for? Judge it. I'm a judger. I judge. Now, you add a hardworking, driven nature, who's a judger, okay, and that's some of you here as well. What does that lead to, or can it lead to? Well, I can make some pretty rash judgments. So, Jesus addresses this issue, believe it or not, in his sermon. And so let's talk about this verse, this section of scripture. And the question I have for us this morning, it says, do not judge, and I put a question mark up there. Because our Lord addresses this controversial topic of making judgments in human relationships. And these verses, just so you know, are some of the most often misinterpreted 
and thus misapplied verses in the entire Bible. Amen, Amen to that. Who likes being wrong about judgments? That'd be like a silent, oh, you're right, the conviction. Because it was very convicting preparing this sermon. As we'll see, I want you to understand, Jesus is not forbidding, obviously, making any form or all forms of judgment, but he's targeting a specific type of judgment that we are to avoid. And as in all other elements of the Sermon on the Mount, and I ask you to keep this in the back of your mind, Jesus' perspective is given in contrast to the view of who? The Pharisees. Because that was the dominant viewpoint at the time. The scribes and the Pharisees. And we know what about the Pharisees? They were self-righteous. And whenever you find self-righteousness, it always leads to a, a conviction, a belief of, that you are superior to everybody else. And of course, that leads to a condemnation and judgment of everybody else. As you begin to look down upon people, so you are, think you're superior, you start to despise people, and then you condemn or judge them, and that's a lot of life experiences for us. And the silence in the room is very, very appropriate because everybody at some point in time struggles with that. Now, because of their judgmental attitude, the Pharisees um, had a habit. They would pass what we call a superficial judgments that our Lord is saying, we must not do this. This was such an identifying characteristic of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus actually said this plenty to them in John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That was spoken to the Pharisees. And of course, it also applies to us. Now, the classic illustration of the misjudgment of the Pharisees is found in Luke 18. And just by guessing, what parable am I going to go to here? What's the parable of the tax collector? He's considered, tax collectors were considered to be the, the most vilest and sinners of Jewish society. They were viewed as traitors to the Jewish people for collecting taxes for Rome while exploiting the people for financial gain. This is what Jesus said in this parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14. You'll recognize it, but think of it in terms of the view or through the lens of the judgment rendered by the Pharisee. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's the despising, looking down upon. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, Denver Bronco fans, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> Enjoy the game, by the way? Good, good. My wife got tickets to the uh, Seahawks-Broncos game, and you know, with, with it being preseason, let's offer the Harris's, and I got, they were able to go, and it was good, and so on, so I got to give them a, a shout-out there. So, yeah. I'm glad the tickets could be used. Says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, the man who went 
I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Luke 18, 9 through 14. Now, the condemning, critical judgment of the Pharisees, uh, in this particular Pharisee in this parable, it wasn't just askew, folks. Think about this. It was in direct opposition to who? The Pharisees' judgment was in direct opposition to who? The judgment of God. He viewed the tax collector as what? Vile. Yet God viewed the tax collector as what? Justified. And as Jesus said in John 7, 24, the verse I just read, we are called to make righteous judgments. In fact, in this very sermon, Jesus is asking his audience, those who were in attendance who were listening to him, that as they hear his sermon on the mount, to make a judgment between his truth claims as opposed to the truth claims of the Pharisees. See, he's calling them to discern, to discriminate, to evaluate, and then to make a judgment with all the facts that he is presenting to them in this famous sermon. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we proceed. You have to make judgments in this life. And you will be judged for those judgments you make. Thus, the importance of making righteous judgments. Because Jesus is not condemning all judgment. Now, there are some who interpret this passage, in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, in such a manner that it is simply ludicrous. They said we make no judgments at all about people. And that's not what this text is saying. Let's break down these six verses in Matthew 7, and hopefully we can arrive as a group at an understanding of the text. And I'm going to start with this, which would probably be the best definition of the first verse. And this will hit all of us, it should hit all of us right between the eyes, and that is stop criticizing. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. There are types of judgments that the Bible says that we are to avoid making. The first one is this, it's a legal judgment, obviously. Now in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 39, we talked about this a, a while ago. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was a passage that said that in Christianity, there is no room for personal vengeance. It doesn't mean that the governing authorities won't make a judgment on those who deserve it, okay? But there's no place in the Bible for personal vengeance. We cannot make official legal judgments as God's left that to who? The courts of law. There is no personal, we don't make these type of legal judgments. Now, of course, that may not be something that we struggle with, but we certainly struggle with the next one, that is a hasty judgment. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. So the Bible forbids us from making judgments on less than full knowledge and facts. There is an old Welsh fable that reminds us 
not to rush to judgment without all the facts. This man existed in, in uh, the 13th century. Llewellyn the Great, the prince of Gwynedd in the 13th century, he had a dog that belonged to him. He'd been given the dog as a gift from King John of England. And Prince Llewellyn's wife passed away. And the dog was charged with watching the cradle of the prince's baby when he went hunting. So after one particular hunting trip, the prince had returned to find the cradle of the baby overturned and the bedding and the floor covered in blood. With the baby missing and seeing his dog with blood covering his mouth, the prince plunged his sword into the dog thinking that he had killed the baby. The dog's dying yelp was answered by a child's cry. The prince searched and found the baby unharmed, lying near the dead body of a mighty wolf. The dog had actually been protecting the baby as its owner had desired. It is said that the prince was filled with such remorse that he very rarely or never smiled again. And the point of the story is clear. Making quick judgments can lead to regrets. We need all the facts before rendering judgment. Did that Pharisee in the parable of the tax collector have all the facts about that tax collector? Did that Pharisee have all the facts about how God views humility and justification? Apparently he didn't, but he made a judgment. The last or the third type of judgment word avoid is a, what I call a self-righteous, critical, condemning judgment. This is the type of judgment referred to in Matthew 7.1 that we are to avoid. It's not necessarily talking about hasty judgment or legal judgment, but in this context, in talking to the Pharisees, because that's the context, and that's how they judged, don't judge this way. Because the word judge used in this word is, in, in this context, it's crino, and it's translated at least 15 different ways. There's been a lot of different words for judgment. So it has such a broad meaning that it falls in the context to determine the meaning of the word. And since the whole Sermon on the Mount is in, set in contrast to the false religion, the false Judaism of the day that was taught by the Pharisees and the scribes, so as we look at the context, it's clear that Jesus is using the word judge in contrast with the judgment of the Pharisees. And they judge with a self-righteous, critical, condemning judgment. And as we read in the parable of the tax collector, they practiced this critical, condemning, self-righteous judgment. And that was a judgment not just based on sin. And this is where it gets really hard to hear this, folks, because you and I are all guilty of this. But it was a judgment based on a person's personality, character, or weakness. Perhaps even the way they looked or dressed, or the way they talked, or the fact that they didn't do the things the way they did them. And so they criticized. They even criticized motives, which of course they couldn't perceive or even possibly know because who knows, knows why a person does what he or she does. 
That is what we are to avoid. And that is what every one of us in here is guilty of. And as I said earlier, Jesus is not forbidding all judgment. We have a responsibility to use righteous judgment, John 7, 24. But not that nagging or carping criticism of the Pharisees. That's, this type of judgment, it's forbidden. And so really, the best way to uh, translate verse 1 in that phrase, do not judge, is this. Stop criticizing. You know, stop looking for fault. And our Lord gives us in this passage three reasons to resist judging with that critical, self-righteous, condemning heart. So that's why I talk about judgment incentives. Three reasons why not to judge this way. Number one is this. It's the judgment of God. Look at that. Do not judge, verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Why? So that you will not be judged. This is a reminder, folks. You and I are not the final court. We are not God. And to judge other people in this manner, their motives and so forth, it's to play God. And actually to usurp his position. Every time you sit in judgment on someone, whether you're behind the wheel driving, you don't like the way they drive, which I'm guilty of this, or they're too slow in the grocery store, or I don't like the way they look, or I don't mesh with their personality, or they're a Bronco fan. You get the idea here, right? But every time you sit in judgment on someone, every time you criticize their motives, every time you think you have a right to make an evaluation, we're playing God, and that is not our role. We can't forget John chapter 5. Jesus said this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. At this time, folks, we are not to sit in judgment. God is the judge. Consider James, the brother of Jesus, is his words. He says this, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? That's James 4, 11 and 12. Do we judge people in this way? We are usurping God's role. We set ourselves up above the law as the judge of the law rather than one who is subject to the law. And we are subject to the law. We're not above the law. Only one is, and that is God. Consider Romans 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You do not judge because that person is God's servant, is really what this text is saying. 
God is able to determine if he'll stand or fall. So every time you criticize somebody because they don't do something the way you think it ought to be done, or because you think you figured out their motive, again, you pass judgment and you set yourself up to be God. And guess what? That's the standard by which you will be judged by God. And is that what you really want on the day of judgment? I think your silence speaks volumes. Now, the other incentive, and this is really, really scary. This is why I label it this way. It's the danger of knowledge. The danger of knowledge. Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. We are going to get what we give. You hear me on that? We're going to get what we give. And when we judge, I mean, let's face it, we tend to forget the standard by which we judge is the same standard by which we will be judged. I don't think about when I'm judging somebody and I'm looking down upon them and typically probably doing it in my heart, I, don't, I forget the fact that that's the standard by which I'm going to be judged. So we better be sure that we're living up to the standard by which we measure others, right? And this is why the Bible says in Luke 12, 47 to 48, in that slave who knew his master's will, and we know, by the way, we shouldn't judge, right? So we know the master's will, and did not get ready or act in accord to his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So the more you know, the more you are responsible for. The more you know, and that's why knowledge can be dangerous. That's why the scriptures say this about teachers. James said this, three, James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So the one who stands up in teaching, myself, is the one who gives evidence of knowing, right? And what you know is going to be what you're judged on. And the more you know, the severer the judgment. And by the way, our knowledge explains why it is so dangerous to judge others in this manner. Simply put, let me explain this, we all have a tendency to view other people, or view just people, through what we call a good-bad split. You familiar with that phrase? When I am not in conflict with a person, and let's use my wife for example, she's good. She's all good right? I don't see her faults. But when she offends me, she becomes all bad, right? And I become fault-finding, and I begin to judge her with a critical spirit from my heart. And this is the very thing that Jesus wants us to avoid. Well, why? Because in my 
my state of offense, I have a wrong view of my wife. Because well, what can I see? I mean, what is all I'm seeing in my state of offense? You have to answer this question. I'm not going to give it to you. They're false. All I see is that. Therefore, I have a wrong view of her. All I can see is the bad. And I forget what? The good. So my knowledge of her is then what? It's tainted. It's distorted. It's incomplete. And since I am judged by what I know, I am now on dangerous ground. So it is better, it is always better to deal with the offense and return to a balanced view of the person than to risk falling under judgment. So we should stop criticizing because criticism, criticism is like a boomerang. You throw it out and guess what? It comes right back. An unloving criticism will recoil on your own head by the hand of God. It's that you reap what you sow, right? I mean, it would be good for us to all remember the name Adonai Bezik. Adonai Bezik, A-D-O-N-I slash B-E-Z-E-K. He was a Canaanite king known for cutting off the thumbs and big toes of the kings he had defeated in the Old Testament. He was defeated by Israel. Listen to what happened to him. Judges 1, verses 5 and 7. They found Adonai Bezik in, in Bezik and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezik fled, and they pursued him, and guess what they did? They caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezik said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to gather up scraps under my table. He defeated 70 kings, cut off their their thumbs and toes, and they were servants, slaves, underneath his table. This is what he says. As I have done, so God has repaid me. The standard by which you judge, the standard by which you will be judged. Payback can hurt. You reap what you sow. So stop criticizing. Finally, he says here, judgment incentives is, it's hypocrisy. Look at verses 3 through 5 of Matthew 7. When do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Actually, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, is your life, and this is a question I have for everybody in here, is your life so together that you can accurately evaluate others? Because if you think so, you have a distorted view of yourself, and any attempt to correct somebody is hypocrisy. See, until you get your own life straightened out, you have little usefulness in trying to assist someone else. This is a message of these three verses. And the analogy of a speck or a splinter in a log, it's really kind of comical if you think about it. Someone with a log in their eye, are they even capable of getting close to anybody 
much less be able to see clearly to help anybody else. You know, get a log in your eye. Am I going to be able to see anything? Of course not. No. It would be the blind leading the blind. We are unfit, hypocritical judges. That's who we are. Not only because we can't play the part of God, but because we are partial in our own favor in our decisions and judgments. And we tend to think that we have a different standard than everybody else. But because we are hopelessly and utterly blind when it comes to seeing reality. This is why Jesus started with the Beatitudes. What's the very first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, until you've humbly and meekly come to Christ and hungered and thirsted for righteousness, not of your own, but out of a recognition that you're just this, this ugly, sinful person, you can't help other people with their sin problem. That's why the Pharisees were of absolutely no help to the people around them. The truly holy person, as those first four Beatitudes reveal, is lost in his own sin. Because what are you doing? I recognize my, my sinfulness, my radical corruption. I'm confessing my sins to God. I'm humbled by it all, and I'm seeking and hungering and thirsting for a righteousness not of my own. I mean, half of the Beatitudes are you are lost in your sin, overwhelmed by your sinfulness. The truly humble person, they're not trying to pull splinters out of people's eyes with a, while there's a plank in their own eye. They see themselves in this way. They see themselves according to reality. So stop being the hypocrite, is what he's saying here, pretending to be what you are not. But because, and this is what is difficult, this is a sinful world that we live in, and there will be times when brothers and sisters will fall to sin and will need to be called out of sin, acknowledge your sinfulness, and go to work on it. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, working out your salvation, all of that, it's a lifelong process. Work on those things in your life. Because that's the biblical pattern. Work on it, you're humbled by your sin, then you'll be able to help others. Listen to David in Psalm 51. He just committed this sin with Bathsheba. This is what he writes. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's verse 10. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So after being humbled by your own sinfulness, overwhelmed by it really, then we get our act together. It is only then we'll be able to help to offer, be able to offer the kind of help that will be right. And what kind of help is it? And you want to never know how to call somebody on your sin, to confront them on their sin? This is how you do it, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's, it will be a meek and a gentle and a humble help. You don't come to a sinning brother or sister on top as if you are superior. You come from underneath in humility as if you are their servant. Overwhelmed by your own sinfulness. Because these verses serve as a reminder 
that when we make righteous judgments in regard to a brother's sin, we are to confront this sin in order to restore him. Now, I don't like this, to be honest with you. I don't like having to call people on their sin. I'd like to avoid it, to be honest with you. But that's not an option. The Old Testament demanded confronting the sin of a brother, did you know this? Based on the commandment to love your neighbor. From the perspective of the Old Testament, to tolerate the sin of a brother is the same as hating him or her. Look at this verse, folks. Did you even know this verse? You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. So in other words, I'm not to hate somebody from the heart. I'm to love from the heart, because you love God by your heart, soul, mind, strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Old Testament prescribes, right? So the opposite of loving would be hating them. And you demonstrate love for them by what? You may surely reprove your neighbor. But if you hate them, you don't reprove them. You leave them in their sin. It's like you see somebody, you know they're, they're a believer and they're in sin, and you just don't confront them. And we do that. And we do that in the church. We tolerate sin in the church. We have plenty of examples you know, throughout history of you just couldn't do that. But I have dealt with that in pastors that we talk about all the time, over and over and over again. We can't tolerate sin in the church because God calls us to confront sin. And we don't like doing it. But the most loving thing you can do to anybody that is a believer in Jesus Christ that is in sin is to call them on it. To not call them on it is to demonstrate that you actually don't care about them. Really, you hate them. Did you know that? To refuse to confront sin is hating your brother. Now, it's never easy, like as I said, and too many individual Christians in churches, they misinterpret Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, and use it as an excuse to avoid conflict. And all we're doing is tolerating sin in the church. The church is the very institution which is called to be the standard of holiness for the world to see. So I want you to see that these verses are not just a call to avoid making wrong judgments, but it's also a call to holiness by driving out sin within yourself, within others, and ultimately within the church. If we don't confront sin, then the leaven is never removed from the lump of dough. And what happens? If you don't confront sin in the church, you'll have a corrupted church. Now there is one final judgment we must make, and it really is a bombshell. And you probably like this uh, phraseology here, but it's what I call dogs and hogs judgment. Dogs and hogs judgment. Look at Matthew 7 verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine. or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
And what does this verse mean? And what does that have to do with making righteous judgments? Well, apart from trained sheepdogs over 2,000 years ago, generally speaking, dogs in the time of Jesus, they were wild mongrels. They scavenged around the city in packs and they ate garbage. Being wild, they would howl, they would snarl, they would threaten, and they were actually considered to be savage animals. And obviously, holy things were not to be thrown to the dogs. But what are the holy things Jesus is referring to here? Well, when a Jew came to the temple to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice would be presented to the Lord. And they would take a part of the, the sacrifice home with them. A part would go to the priest for his meal. And a part would go to the altar. And the part that went on the altar was for God. It would be consumed on the altar through fire as an offering to the Lord. And no priest would take the part on the altar. They wouldn't touch it. That was for God. Now, he might throw away the bones left from the part that he took out, okay, for his own self. And he might take his own bones and throw them out the door so these dogs would have something to eat. But under no circumstances was a priest going to take that which was offered to God on the altar and throw it to wild dogs. I mean, that would be a horrible desecration by an unclean animal. So it was commonly understood you never did that. So what the Lord is saying is, I mean, you better practice righteous judgment in your ministry. In other words, there are some people who will hear your preaching on sin and repentance, which is basically the gospel, and will respond by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. But you don't waste the precious truths found in the gospel to those who reject it, and they critically tear it apart. And that flies in the face of a lot of us belief. You keep taking the gospel to people. No, not if they reject it. And you'll see it. That's not even biblical to do that. He gives a second illustration to drive home the point using pigs. So he goes from dogs to hogs. And pigs in those days, they weren't quite as domesticated as they are today. And you certainly didn't want a bunch of mad pigs coming at you. But pearls were of great value at that time in history. Did you know that men would liquidate entire fortunes to get just one pearl from the Persian or Indian Ocean? The Persian Sea or the Indian Ocean? If you threw pearls to pigs who do not understand the priceless value of a pearl and certainly will not appreciate what they've been given, they're only going to trample them under their feet. And nobody in their right mind would do such a thing, right? And that's the point. In your ministry, don't waste things on those who don't appreciate them. Use righteous judgment. Discern, discriminate, evaluate. Jesus did this in his ministry. He could only reveal certain things to the disciples. Do you remember that? They weren't ready. Other things he had to hide from them. Into the world, the secrets of his parables were hidden from their understanding. And to the disciples, he said this, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, nor they're hearing the gospel, they're rejecting it, you go out of that house, that city, and do what? You shake the dust off your feet. 
as a testimony against that city. And this was the custom of the early church. Paul said this to the Jews in Corinth. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So to those who have willfully turned away from the gospel, they turned their backs on God and the truths of God, you no longer offer them the gospel. They will only trample the precious truths under their feet. Here's the thing. By you not offering them the gospel, again, you're demonstrating love towards them. The more truth you offer them, the more knowledge they will have what will happen to them at the day of judgment. There's more judgment and more condemnation. So don't offer it to them. They reject it. They made their decision. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't on their own come to Christ, but you're not going to them. You see? Now, this is a hard word from the Lord, but it's also a necessary word. And so in closing, you know, we must deal with sin in the life of another brother or sister after we've been humbled by our own sin. We must make judgments, but they're proper righteous judgments. And we, as we deal with the sin in our own lives, this will ensure that we will never be judgmental and critical and set ourselves up as some kind of self-righteous judge. And we use discrimination, discernment, in who we share the gospel with. Now, I've included characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the last couple sermons. So here they are again. You've seen these before. They all start with P, so you can hopefully help you remember them. But I want to add to this last one here. Not only do we not worry, by the way, but we pass on criticizing We don't have all the facts. We practice righteous judgment, and that's the application point. Practice righteous judgment. And so I hope that I was able to explain this text to you this morning. Because it's a very convicting text. Because I am guilty of the type of judgments that I am not to make. And as a citizen of his kingdom, we should not be critical people. The criticism that 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 is within us needs to be turned inward in ourselves, in areas of our lives that we need to work on. And then when the opportunity comes to help another brother or sister, and God will bring those people into your life, you'll be able to help them in humility. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray and close with a song? Lord, I thank you for your time with us this morning. I hope that people found you, they experienced you, they are growing closer to you. I hope and pray that this local church here in Auburn Bible Chapel is built up as a result of this morning. We need your strength and the power of the Holy Spirit 
to practice righteous judgment. A judgment that is not practiced in our world that we find on social media, that we find in the political world, that we find amongst our co-workers. Lord, may we be quick to love and slow to anger and slow to judge, full of compassion and mercy. And may this song that we close with this morning be pleasing to you. Amen.